and we're going to pick up uh, with some really fast-paced stuff. Things start to really move in the Gospel of Matthew, starting in chapter 26. It's a very abrupt transition from this, the final days before Jesus' death, and things are going to really move quickly from here uh, to the point of Jesus being crucified um, by, the, by the Romans. So let's start by reading Rome, uh, Matthew chapter 26, verses 1 through 16 together. And it says this, When Jesus had finished saying all these things, he told his disciples, You know that the Passover takes place after two days, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. And then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the courtyard of the high priest, who was named Caiaphas. And they conspired to arrest Jesus in a treacherous way and to kill him. But not during the festival, they said, so there won't be rioting among the people. Now, while Jesus was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, a woman approached him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume. And she poured it on his head as he was reclining at the table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant. Well, why this waste, they asked. This might have been sold for a great deal and given to the poor. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, why are you bothering this woman? She has done a noble thing for me. You always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. By pouring this perfume on my body, she has prepared me for burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. And then one of the twelve, a man called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What are you willing to give me if I hand him over to you? So they weighed out 30 pieces of silver for him. And from that time, he started looking for a good opportunity to betray him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time in your word. And just pray that you would help us to understand um, just more of what you've done for us in sending Jesus to be our Savior, our Messiah, and our sacrifice. Pray that your spirit would enlighten our hearts and our minds. In Jesus' name, amen. When you read these 16 verses together, they, they kind of seem a little disconnected, don't they? It seems like you're just like jumping from one subject to the next, but they all really are connected. And these 16 verses set the stage for what's going to happen in, in our Bibles in the next two chapters. Now, remember when this was written, they didn't have chapters. But the, the next two chapters in our Bibles are going to be based off of really what happens right here. And it starts right in verse 1. It just jumps right in, and it said, when Jesus has finished saying all these things. Now, that statement is something that we've been tracking through Matthew. If you're new with us in the Gospel of Matthew, we've been hanging out here for quite some time, and Matthew uses certain phrases to show us that he's transitioning from one section to the next, or from a teaching section to a narrative section in this particular case. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, he's done this four other times where he's used this phrase when Jesus had finished. And I'm going to put them up here on the slides for you. Um, chapter, uh, I think I actually missed one of them. Uh, chapter 7, verse 28, chapter 11, verse 1, chapter 13, verse 53, and I think chapter 19, and then chapter 26, verse 1. So it changes in that case, and you'll see it's when Jesus had finished saying these things, when Jesus had finished giving instructions, when Jesus had finished these parables, when Jesus had finished saying all these things. This is this transition where we're going from a teaching section into a narrative section, and actually this one's kind of unique. Um, it says something a little different here. Can anybody tell me what the difference is between those? It's, there's one word that's just unique about this one. The word all. Yeah, when Jesus had finished saying all these things, this marks not only the end of this major teaching section for Jesus, but it's the end of his teaching time 
his formal teaching time on this earth. There's a lot for us to learn, so please don't misunderstand that statement. But he's not going to sit down with his disciples at this point, from this point on, and just start instructing them on the kingdom of heaven and teaching them in, in more parables. He had finished instructing them with all the things that they needed up to this point. Now, by using this phrase, I think Matthew is actually trying to make some other connections for us. Uh, we've talked over this gospel about how Jesus is a type of Moses, right? How, he, how he's the perfect Moses. Moses was a type of Christ, I guess would be the way we would prefer to say that, right? Moses was a type of, of Christ. And when you read about Moses' ministry, the book of Deuteronomy, chapters, it's okay, chapters 31 through 34, is the end of Moses' life, right? There's, there's a, an address, a final speech, there's a final song, then there's a final blessing that Moses gives to the nation Israel. And that's in Deuteronomy 31 through, um, through 34. And in Deuteronomy 32, we read this. When Moses came with Joshua, the son of Nun, and recited all the words of this song in the presence of the people, and after Moses finished reciting all these words to Israel, he said to them, Take to heart all, all these words that I am giving as a warning to you today, so that you may command your children to follow all the words of this law carefully. For they are not meaningless words to you, but they are your life. And by them you will live long in the land you are crossing to the Jordan to possess. And on that same day, the Lord spoke to Moses, Go up to Mount Nebo, in the land of Moab, across from Jericho, and view the land of Canaan that I'm giving the Israelites as a possession. And then you will die on the mountain that you go up to, and you'll be gathered to your people, just as your brother Aaron died on Mount Hor and was gathered to his people. So we have this end of lifetime for Moses where he makes sure that the nation has all of God's law, all of the word before he leaves, before they enter the promised land, which he's not allowed to go into. And he actually gives them all of the law. He gives them a song to learn to remember all of what God had done. He commands them to remember all these things because all of these things will bring them life because they bring them connectedness and relationship to their father, to the God who chose them as his people. As they enter into a promised land that Moses will not get to go into. Moses will die without seeing the promised land. So, Keeping that in mind, I want to flip back to Matthew 26. When Jesus had finished saying all these things, he told his disciples, you know that the Passover takes place after two days and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. When Jesus had finished teaching his disciples all that they needed to know about the Messiah and the kingdom of God, he told his disciples it was time for him to die. He would be taken up onto a hill to be killed, to provide a way for his people to enter into the ultimate promised land, the land where God their Father is with them. So Matthew's trying to help us understand that Jesus is a prophet. He's the prophet that's greater than Moses who has come, and he is the one who is going to lead, the people, lead people ultimately into the promised land. Now, this is the fourth time that Jesus mentioned he's going to die. Each time we were given a little more detail. We've covered this before. I'm going to quickly go through these verses. In Matthew 16, 21, Jesus told his disciples, 
It says, from, from then on, Jesus began to point out to his disciples that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem to suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, and scribes, be killed and raised on the third day. So Jesus told his disciples this would happen. A little bit later on, he says, as they were gathered together in Galilee, Jesus told them, the Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and on the third day he will be raised. And they were deeply distressed. So now we have the same information, only now there's a betrayal that's going to happen. In Matthew chapter 20, see, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and scribes. They will condemn him to death, and they will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked, flogged, and crucified, and on the third day he will be raised. So now we have this Gentile group that will be crucifying him. There's only one group at that time that crucified people that were non-Jews, and who was that, who was that group? Rome. It was Rome. So this group of Gentiles is the Romans that he's talking about. So there's a summary, if you put all of these together, that Jesus has given, and it's this. Jesus said, Jesus will be betrayed. The chief priests, scribes, and elders will condemn Jesus to death and turn him over to the Gentiles or the Romans who will mock him, flog him, and crucify him. He'll be killed and buried and on the third day, he will rise from the dead. Back to Matthew 26, 2. You know that in the Passover takes place in two days, Jesus said. And the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. We've now added to, those, to that summary the fact that everything Jesus said was going to happen, it's going to happen two days from now. Two days from when he says this. All this is going to take place. Now, if you're one of the disciples, you might be thinking, okay, well, Jesus is going to have this reign. He's going to be set up. He's going to appoint us as, as rulers with him, and we'll kind of be in charge. And then at some point, they're going to take him off and kill him. He's like, no, this is going to happen really soon. It's going to happen in two days. Um, it's actually Wednesday. Are you okay? It's actually Wednesday of the Passover week. Um, now, it's the Passover week in Jerusalem, the Passover celebration in Jerusalem. The city is swollen with people. You're talking about f at least four times the number of normal people in a city. Imagine going to Syracuse and having four times as many people there. Or Watertown. How many of you like driving through Watertown? Right? Imagine Watertown with four times as many people all cramming into Arsenal Street. How many of you just be like, I am not going there, right? Well, people went here on purpose because there was a feast and a celebration. So they were crowding the cities. Four times, at least four times as many people will be anticipated to be there. And Jesus came with his disciples and a large group from Galilee into the city not that many days before. It was actually on a Friday. And after arriving in the city on Friday, Jesus then went into the temple and started teaching in the temple. And he was teaching the crowds, he was confronting and confounding the religious leaders, right? So they were trying to trick him, and he was just like shutting them down. And then every night he would go up to the Mount of Olives where he would take a rest. So let me just show you what this week looks like. Um, here's a chart from one of my uh, Bible dictionaries. It shows that Friday Jesus arrived in Bethany. On Saturday you have this anointing of Jesus in the timeline. And Sunday, the triumphal entry where he comes in on the, the foal of a donkey and people are waving branches and laying garments on the street and he comes riding into Jerusalem. Everybody's like, hey! 
you know, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're all excited. Um, on Monday, he goes in and starts cleansing the temple, throwing people out, getting rid of the money changers and, and the merchants. Um, he curses the fig tree. Um, on Tuesday, there's the, um, a lot of things that happen there. He debates with the leaders, but then he teaches the Olivet Discourse that we just got done covering in the previous chapter. On Wednesday, there's not a lot that goes on, um, other than uh, to believe that that's when Judas arranged for his betrayal. Thursday is the preparation for the Passover, the Passover meal, which Lord willing we'll look at next week, um, the farewell discourse, the Garden of Gethsemane scene, and then on Friday there's going to be the trials and the crucifixion and, and all of that's going to take place on the Friday. All of that had to take place before the Sabbath, which would be their Saturday. Right? So this is a timeline. So we're actually talking about right now, and this, when Jesus says in two days this is going to happen, this would put us on the Wednesday of that week. A lot happens in this one week. Like we spent, we spent like, you know, just one chapter could cover, I don't know, a year's worth of time earlier in Matthew's gospel. Now you've got a lot happening in this one week of time. And the first thing we notice in this week of time, Jesus says, okay, in two days it's going to be the Passover and I'm going to be handed over to be killed. And then we're told about the group that's plotting to kill him. We get the scribes and the elders the religious leaders of his day. And they are the ones who, Jesus said, are going to condemn him to death. They're going to sentence him to die. And we read several times in Matthew's Gospel, they really didn't like Jesus, and they tried to get rid of him a couple different times. Um, if you read Matthew 12, 14, it says that the Pharisees took counsel against him as to how they might destroy him. Actually, that word destroy there could be how they could, basically they wanted to just get rid of him, do away with, dispose of. It's not the same as the word kill, but it's the idea of getting, discrediting him, getting, getting rid of him. Um, when that didn't work, they, in Matthew twenty-two fifteen, the Pharisees went out and plotted how to trap him by what he said. They figured, well, if they discredit his teachings, they can, you know, people won't follow him, so they tried to trap him, and that backfired. And now we have this. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the courtyard of the high priest, who was named Caiaphas, and they conspired against, to arrest Jesus in a treacherous way and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, so there won't be rioting among the people. So what we have is an informal gathering of the religious leaders at the home of this guy named Joseph Caiaphas. Um, now, Joseph Caiaphas is a bit of a shady character. I know he has the title high priest, but right, let's just be honest. Can we just say that not all pastors are upstanding people? They should be. But the high priest in Israel at this time was not an upstanding person necessarily. Um, so let me just go back a little bit in history here. Anybody know when the priesthood was set up and who was the first high priest? Aaron was the first high priest. Who established the priesthood? God, right? God's like, okay, this is my man, do this, I'm going to appoint him. Like, okay, you know, I gave you the good church answer. You know, if you're in the Old Testament, just say God and you win. It, it always answers it, right? So during the life of Moses, the priesthood was established. And God picked Aaron and his descendants after him to be the high priestly line of Israel. So a descendant of Aaron was always supposed to be one of the people who would be one of the high priests. So it's based on heredity. It's something that you were born into, not something that you could buy your way into. Um, 
That changed in 175 BC. In 175 BC, um, there was this guy named Antiochus Epiphanes. Do you remember that name? Probably not. Um, or Antiochus IV. We talked about him, and we're going to talk about him just a little bit more here in just a second. We talked about him when we talked about the, the um, abomination of desolation. You're like, oh, yeah, that whole thing that I tried to forget about. Yeah, um, okay. Well, in 175 BC, um, there was a high priest who was supposed to be in office, and he was kicked out by um, Antiochus IV. And I actually have uh, a little bit of the information here that comes from uh, a Bible dictionary on him. So I want you to, I'm going to read this for you. There's some stuff happening here in the priesthood where this um, ruler who is not Jewish is taking over and appointing people to be high priest. So taking advantage of the instability of Jerusalem, of the Jerusalem priesthood, Jason, the brother of Onias III, which those, Onias was the one who was supposed to be the next high priest, bribed Antiochus IV to support him as the new high priest, promising Antiochus 360 talents, or approximately 26,000 pounds of silver per year. 80 talents as a one-time payment, an additional 150 talents to transform Jerusalem into a Hellenistic city, complete with gymnasiums. Um, Menelius, however, outbid Jason for the high priesthood. He promised uh, so much tribute that the Seleucids, um, that he began to sell things from the temple to start paying for this amount of money that he was going to give this governor, this leader. So another guy that wanted to be the high priest promised more money than even the 26,000 pounds of silver. And to, to make up for it, since his bid was, was rewarded and he's the one that got the bid, he started selling off things from the temple to pay for what he promised to pay. It's pretty rough stuff. It actually began a revolt. Um, maybe you hear of the Maccabean revolt? This is kind of what got things started. <laughs> they were really upset at this. And so the Maccabeans actually revolt against this. Um, so... Antiochus, um, after, uh, let's see, Antiochus IV tried to resolve the dispute between these people. However, um, they just kept, they kept fighting back and forth. Eventually, um, Antiochus got so fed up with all this that he prohibited temple sacrifices, um, prohibited the Sabbath, festival observances, the practice of circumcision, and possession of the Book of the Covenant. And then he took a statue of Zeus and put it in the temple and built altars all throughout Judea to Zeus. This was part of that abomination of desolation that we talked about that Daniel was probably referring to as one of those instances of that abomination. So this guy, Antiochus Epiphanes, is the guy who was being bribed by high priests so that they could have the position of high priest. So about 175, 176 before BC, the priesthood had become pretty corrupt by that point. It probably started before that, but it showed up really big there. In 6 AD, there's this guy named Quirinius. Any of you recognize Quirinius' name? He's the governor who that ordered the census, right? Quirinius in AD 6, he was the governor of Syria. He appointed his own high priest, Annas, the high priest. Uh, Annas um, 
was also not a really good guy. Uh, he had, I think, five sons and a son-in-law, and all of them uh, ended up in some way or another being involved in the priesthood, most of them not lasting very long. It's his son-in-law that actually ends up becoming the high priest for a long time. And that son-in-law is the guy we're talking about today. Joseph Caiaphas. Um, in AD 15, Annas got deposed, kicked out, and Caiaphas, his son-in-law, became the high priest. However, Annas is still around, and he's still influential. And later on, you're going to meet Annas because he and Caiaphas are going to be talking together as they're, as they're confronting Jesus. So these are the big players that are taking place here. Um, Caiaphas actually was there for 18 years until AD 36. So the religious leaders, the elders, the scribes, the, the religious leaders of the day, are meeting in the courtyard of a Roman-appointed, politically-aligned high priest with a corrupted leadership, right? Corrupted leadership. The goal of their meeting was to arrest and kill Jesus. Now, the way that they wanted to do it, it's kind of interesting. How, so just curious, how many of you use the NIV version of the Bible? Translation, NIV translation. How many of you use the New American Standard? How many of you like, I don't even know what a Bible translation is. Um, CSB, ESV, New King James. So if you look at them and you go through these, this verse, um, Matthew 26, 4, they conspired to arrest Jesus in a treacherous way. That word treacherous is translated in almost every way possible. Um, secretly, surreptitiously. I like that word. It's kind of a fun word. It means uh, in a way to avoid notice or attention. Uh, covertly, by stealth in some sly way, by trickery. Um, see, the crowds love Jesus. And the city's full of people, and they've actually in, kind of become endeared, especially the group from Galilee that followed Jesus, uh, that was with Jesus, excuse me, as they were traveling up for the Passover. They'd seen his miracles and his works over and over and over again. This large group of people that had seen Jesus come in and, and had that triumphal entry and were shouting and celebrating, they'd been in the temple listening to him, and the leaders were like, listen, if we take him now, there's going to be a riot. If there's a riot, Rome's going to come in and shut us down. They're looking for an opportunity to oppress us and to get rid of us. They've done it before, they'll do it again. We have to make sure there's not a riot because we don't want to upset Rome. Now, Caiaphas is really concerned about this because Caiaphas is a politically aligned high priest. He doesn't want to get in bad place with the Roman leadership. So based on the context, I really like the translation of um, secretly or um, in a stealth way, in a way that nobody will notice. They want it to be done quietly. Take them out and make sure nobody notices, right? It's almost like a mafia thing going on here. In the end, their objective was to mistreat and kill Jesus. And this is obviously exactly what Jesus said would happen. They see Jesus as a threat to people and as a menace to their work. And now, while it might seem honorable to want to protect people from a teacher that you believe could be leading people astray, and I would hope that any pastor would do whatever they could within the, law, the bounds of the law to protect their people from teachers who will lead others astray. Um, there's a lot more God-honoring ways to do it than this. And it's not what the high priest should be trying to accomplish. 
So what would lead a spiritual leader, a religious authority, someone that the people of Israel would be looking up to, to harbor such animosity in their heart, to want to take the life of another innocent human being made in the image of God? What could bring somebody to that point? I think what we've seen over and over again is that they felt threatened. They saw Jesus as a threat to their way of life, to their popularity, to their authority. Jesus got done teaching and they said, wow, this guy teaches like authority, not like those guys over there. I mean, they felt threatened by Jesus and his ministry. And when someone feels threatened, they're often willing to do things that are rash and even exceptional and uncommon for them. But we don't, get, we don't get much more than just their motives of, of hatred and anger and of perhaps jealousy over Jesus' ministry. But I think that that's enough. So we start by Jesus pulling his disciples together. After he's done teaching them everything they need to know, he says, in two days, I'm going to be delivered up to be crucified. And then we are introduced to the group that's going to, cru- that's going to want him crucified, that's going to condemn him. And that's the scribes and the, the religious leaders, the elders of the people that are all meeting at the court of the high priest, the politically charged high priest. And then we get this other story about this perfume in the middle of all this. Does that seem a little odd to you? Like, no, it's totally normal. This is Matthew, right? Um, Verses 6 through 16 give us a whole other story that seems like it's disconnected, but it's really not. So let's read that together. While Jesus was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper. A woman approached him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume. She poured it on his head as he was reclining at the table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant. Why this waste, they asked. This might have been sold for a great deal and given to the poor. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, why are you bothering this woman? She has done a noble thing for me. You always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. By pouring this perfume on my body, she has prepared me for burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. So, if you remember, Matthew is not the gospel writer who is in love with chronology. Matthew has a whole different timeline than the rest of the gospel writers. He just takes a piece from this story and a piece from this story, and he puts them together because they're connected in theme, not because they're... going necessarily in chronological order. So that phrase, while Jesus was in Bethany, um, is actually a flashback in this case. So you have Jesus saying, in two days, I'm going to be crucified. You have the plot of the high priest. And then, oh yeah, well, back in the day when he was in Bethany, not too long ago, just a couple days beforehand, there's this event that took place that you really should know about because it has a bearing on what's taking place right now in this betrayal part. It's a flashback. Um, So at quick glance, it's just a woman pouring perfume over Jesus. It's the disciples getting upset at the waste of money, right? The money could have helped the poor. Let's be honest. Don't we struggle with that sometimes in ministry? Like, should we do this or should we use this money for other people, right? It's always a, a struggle. Jesus corrected the disciples and told them the meaning of the event. And we look at it just from Matthew's narrative, you know, you can kind of understand the point of the disciples, can't you? 
Jesus just got done telling them this parable of the sheep and the goats. You remember that parable? And the sheep were put to one side and the goats to the other. And what was the difference between the sheep and the goats? How they treated the poor, the naked, those that were in jail. Well, you know, it was pretty important to Jesus that we take care of the poor. This money, this, this perfume could have been sold and we could have used it to take care of the poor. That's what Jesus told us we need to do. I mean, I want to be a sheep. I don't want to be a goat, right? So we should make sure that we're doing the right things here. You can understand why the disciples might have been upset um, and even come to that conclusion. However, Matthew doesn't give us the whole story. And it's not so clean as that. We really have to jump to the Gospel of John. So if you have your Bibles, I want you to flip over to John chapter 12, which is the parallel um, story of this. It's, it's John's version of the events that took place. John chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. We actually find the timeline here. So remember, we started chapter 26 of Matthew saying two days before the Passover. You go to John chapter 12, verse 1, and it tells us, six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus was, and one of the one that Jesus had raised from the dead. And so they gave a dinner for him there. And Martha was serving them, and um, oops, Lazarus uh, was one of those reclining at the table with him. And then Mary took a pound of perfume, pure and expensive nard, uh, anointed Jesus' feet, wiped his feet with her hair so that the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. And then one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was about to betray him, said, why wasn't this perfume sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Now, he didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He was in charge of the money bag and would steal part of what was put in. And Jesus answered, leave her alone. She has kept it for the day of my burial. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. In John's account, we learn that this woman who is nameless in Matthew's account um, is Mary. And in, in Matthew and Mark, she poured this oil over Jesus' head, and Mark actually says that she broke the jar as well. Um, in John's account, she poured it on his feet and wiped his feet. Um, a pound of perfume is a lot of perfume, right? That's a lot. Um, enough to pour over an entire body like you would at a burial. So the Jews did not embalm. Um, they would just cover with spices and perfumes. So this was probably, um, a lot of the commentaries that I read, so this was probably an heirloom type thing that was very expensive. Obviously 30 denarii was about a year's worth of wages. So imagine one bottle of perfume worth about a year's worth of your wages, very expensive. It was probably something that was being saved or passed down for the burial or the, the death and burial of important family members, most likely. Um, now, why one gospel author says it was the feet and the other one say the head, um, there's a lot of discussion about that. Perhaps we're meant to realize that he was covered from head to toe, as we would call it, like you would in a burial. Um, maybe one is trying to show one side of things. Maybe Jesus did both, and each one is, is showing a different side of it. Um, but what we really want to focus on is a little bit about Judas here. Um, first of all, we're told out flat out that Judas is the one who will betray Jesus. And secondly, we're told what his motive probably is. In John 12, 6, it said, um, 
that Judas didn't say we should sell it and, and use the money for the poor because he cared about the poor, but because he was a, a thief. He was in charge of the money bag and would steal part that was put in it. And I think it, says it pretty much says it all. Um, I could see Judas even twisting the teaching of Jesus about the poor to get the other disciples so riled up that they would agree with him. Didn't Jesus say that we need to take care of the poor? Why, why did this happen? In fact, it doesn't say that Jesus heard them discussing this. Jesus knew what they were discussing, almost like they were mumbling to themselves about this. You can just see like Judas sneaking in there and kind of like planting these seeds, like, what's going on here? That's ridiculous. It'd be $300. That could, three, that could be a whole year's worth of wages. We, we could be using that for the poor. And the disciples could be like, yeah, you're right. How many people could you feed with a year's worth of wages, right? Think about that, right? Now let's just throw a random number out there. Whether it's $10,000 or $100,000, you can feed a lot of people with either amount, right? It's a lot of money. Now, many have speculated as to the motives of Judas. And, and honestly, um, some people have tried not to, I'll call it demonize Judas so much. They, they kind of want to give him a little bit more pure motive. They're not quite sure how somebody can be with Jesus day in and day out and still have such a hard, dark heart. But I think John kind of dispels all doubt. This guy was a thief. He was a crook. And Jesus knew it. And he was still there. It seems that this loss of income, and potentially what Judas could have pocketed, uh, was probably the tipping point that drove Judas to be willing to betray Jesus. And I think that's the message that Matthew wants us to get and why he includes this. He's bringing in, Jesus says, I'm going to be betrayed and I'm going to die in two days. And then there's the scribes and the Pharisees, or the scribes and the elders that are meeting with Caiaphas to figure out how to get rid of Jesus. And then there's this story about Judas and this woman and this money. And Judas is upset because he was a thief and he was missing out on some of the action here. And then we read Matthew 26, verses 14 through 16. And Matthew says, Then one of the twelve, the man called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, what are you willing to give me if I hand him over to you? So they weighed out 30 pieces of silver for him. And from that time on, he started looking for a good opportunity to betray him. Now then could have meant right after the perfume incident. Then could have meant right after the Pharisees met. Then could, then could be a lot of different things in Matthew's gospel. Okay, don't get caught up in the timeline. Don't use Matthew as your guide for a timeline. Okay, I want to be clear on that. Um, the focal point is that Judas, um, one of the 12, was the betrayer that Jesus mentioned in chapter 17, 22. And Matthew is the only one that names the price, 30 pieces of silver. Now, we don't know if this is 30 denarii, which would be like 30 days wages or a month worth of income, or if it was 30 shekels. Um, it says 30 pieces of silver. Now, 30 shekels would be about 120 days wages. That's a lot of money. We don't know which one it was because both coins were minted from silver, and it just says 30 pieces of silver. So we don't really know which one it was. But we do know um, that there was some money involved, and 30 pieces of silver were given. So why did Matthew and none of the other gospel writers include this detail. Now, we've learned that Matthew is a details guy, and when he puts something in there, he's, he's trying to make a connection for us to take it somewhere. They're all clues and hyperlinks. So why 30 pieces of silver? Um, I think there's two reasons, and I want to focus on one this morning, and I think we'll get to the other one in chapter 27 when we get there. Um, 
But why, why did he think it was important? I want to read with you a passage from the law. We talked about Moses giving the law to the people. There's this particular verse in the law. If the ox gores a male or female slave, he must give 30 shekels of silver to the slave's master, and the ox must be stoned. 30 pieces of silver is the price of paying back someone whose servant you killed. Your animal is responsible for killing. It was the price of a common servant. Basically, the religious leaders were saying that the life of Jesus just had the value of a common servant. And they were going to take his life. And they were offering restitution for that life according to the law. In a way, they're absolving Judas from what he's doing. They're saying, we're going to kill Jesus. We're going to pay you because we're the ones who are responsible for the death. So in a way, they're absolving Judas from that, but they're also accepting the fact that they are going to be responsible for the death of Jesus. And they're paying him the price that you would pay for a servant whom your animal killed. Which is just... The fact that you could be a religious leader and be reading God's word all the time and be so callous to to the truth of God's word and who he is and what he stands for, that you could not only plot to kill Jesus, but then just pay off the guy to, to try to get you an opportunity to do this and think that it's okay. So let's look at this as a whole and wrap this up with some application here at the end here. We took 16 verses, and these 16 verses, Matthew is introducing us to the plot that's leading to the events of the next couple chapters. And it has to do with a betrayer and a group of people that want to see Jesus killed. And we know the motives. Judas is motivated by money. The, the scribes and the, the religious leaders and, and Ka- are, are, are motivated by being threatened. Caiaphas He's a political guy. He doesn't want to riot. He doesn't want people being... He he wants to keep his position and his power. And all of them see Jesus as a threat. And they're about to find the opportune moment to take him out. So on the surface, it's just a story, a narrative about the events that are yet to come. But I think we're also invited to notice the stark contrast between the different ways that people respond to Jesus. And Matthew's pointed this out many times. The religious leaders were plotting to protect their position. There are many people who will use religious means, who will use Christianity and wrong actions inside of Christianity because of their need to be in power and in position. There are always people who will be abusers of that. Judas, he was just plotting for profit. There are people who will just simply be in religion for the sake of what it can bring them. What do I mean by that? It's possible to attend a a church family just so that you can build relationships so that you can sell things to people and have business connections because you go to the same church family and it's all about networking inside the, with other Christians inside the, but, but still be so far from God that you've missed what he really wants from you. But then there's Mary. So, first of all, Mary doesn't even belong at the table 
with Jesus. And on top of that, she's of the lowest class of people in her society in that day. And yet she humbly takes something of tremendous value to her and offers it up as a gift of worship. Because of all the people around that room, she's the one that seemed to understand the value of Jesus. I don't think she understood all of what was coming, but she understood how important he was and that his life was a gift from God. One of the people in the story, Judas, was a notorious thief. The other was recognized by her act of worship. You know, if you're interested in leaving a legacy behind, let me ask you, which will you be remembered by? The one who gives or the one who takes? The third thing I think we should notice is that Jesus mentioned that everywhere that the gospel is proclaimed, what this woman did would be remembered, and it has been. But I want you to catch that phrase that everywhere that the gospel is proclaimed, which is a future tense statement that Jesus fully expected that even after his death and resurrection, and especially after that, that the good news of what he's done will be taken to the ends of the earth. Never a question in that. It was not just a call for the disciples that we'll read about in chapter 28 to go to the ends of the earth. When Jesus says, you will be witnesses of me in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. It's not just that. It's not just the go and make disciples of all nations for them. It's the privilege of each and every one of us today as part of his church family to be the ones who get to teach people about the beautiful sacrifice that Jesus made for them. But finally, we have to remember that the scriptures are not a handbook on how we can live life to its fullest and have our best life now or whatever. Yes, it teaches us how to live, but most importantly, it teaches us about God. And it reveals to us his nature and his character. And obviously in the Gospels, it teaches us about Jesus. And while we must offer our lives and what we value to Jesus for what he's done for us, and while we must embrace the privilege we have of taking the good news of, of victory over death and forgiveness of sins and fellowship with the Father to the nations, I think one of the even more valuable insights than those two is the picture of Jesus that's painted for us. The purchase price of 30 pieces of silver symbolizes the, the suffering servant image of the Messiah that we're going to read about later on. Chapter 27, we're going to get into Isaiah chapter 53 of how Jesus did come as a servant, as the Messiah. The, the anointing of oil in the scriptures was done over kings and over priests and occasionally over a prophet. It was done over people appointed by God as representatives to the people. And Jesus was anointed with oil over his head. And the fact that Jesus knew that he would be betrayed and let it happen. I think all of these things are meant to help us see a picture of Jesus that 
we might miss otherwise, but that's so important to the core nature of who he is and what he's done. Jesus willingly allowed himself to be betrayed by Judas, knowing that it would lead to his abuse and even horrible death. And as a servant of the Father, he submitted to that death. And in exchange, the Father anointed him as king and placed him on a throne. I think we see the glimpse of all of this in the events that took place in the story of Judas the betrayer. And I believe the Apostle Paul understood it when he wrote in, to the Philippians church in Philippians 2.5 the following words. I want to read them to you and I want you to, to hear them in light of what Jesus has done. So adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, he did not consider equality with God something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant and taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. And for this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. What a compassionate God we have. What a loving Savior we have. That he would look down on sinful people like me and like you and want us to be forgiven and restored back to him and pay the price necessary for that to happen. And I believe that that love, even though we're going to see some horrible things happen to Jesus, I believe you'll see the love and the mercy and the grace of God is what stands out in the midst of all of that. That Jesus would come and endure these things for you and me just shows how much he loves. 